If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jonah and chapter 3. The book of Jonah and chapter 3 is part 4 in our study of uh, the book of Jonah that begun at the beginning of the year. It's part 5, actually, of uh, our study through the book of Jonah. We are going to be in 3, 1 through 10, so just the, the third chapter of Jonah in our time together this morning. If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, uh, they are on the welcome desk there. You can go grab one uh, now or after service to help you as we work through this book. So Jonah 3 and chapter 1 through 10. If you got it, say I got it. It also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Just got to read this together. The Holy Spirit says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ash, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. The year was 1517. The Roman Catholic Church had a monopoly on Christianity in Europe. Leo X was pope, and he had a building project that started under one of his predecessors, and he wanted to complete the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. The problem, he needed lots and lots of money to pay for it. Well, a brilliant yet sinister strategy was devised in order to raise the necessary money, and it went like this. Give money to pay for the construction of St. Peter's, and the Pope will shorten your time in purgatory. Or he would shorten the time one of your dearly departed loved ones spend in purgatory. This is what's called indulgences. A man named Johannes Tetzel was recruited uh, as the salesman of choice uh, for these indulgences. And he traveled across the continent to sell them to unsuspecting masses. Sinclair Ferguson said Tetzel had mastered the art of communicating to sons and daughters the pleas of their dead parents to deliver them from the flames in which they languished. Tetzel also came up with a jingle for this uh, that went like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. Says Ferguson, that had been the teaching of Pope Sixtus IV. It was Tetzel's gospel, and by and large, that was, when the, that was then the condition of Christianity. Well, Tetzel was giving his pitch one day near Wittenberg, Germany, a monk named Martin Luther had happened to hear this jingle, and he became disgusted and incensed. 
This, in part, led Luther to write what's called the 95 Theses, which he nailed to the castle church door there at Wittenberg in order for his complaints against the Roman church to be undertaken and debated. This is the action that is widely recognized as the jumpstart of the Protestant Reformation. Well, the first of Luther's theses put the axe to the root of the tree of medieval theology. This is what it says. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. What Luther realized and wanted all Christians then as now to know was that the gospel called not for an act of penance, not for clinging coffers to escape some intermediate judgment, but for a radical change of mind that led to deep transformation of life and genuine repentance was key to this. That's why he started his theses this way. And I wonder, is that how you think of repentance? I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear this word, repentance. This word is a word we moderns, we don't like very much. Can we be honest? It seems so stuffy and archaic in our enlightened world of relativism. But for the Christian, repentance should be something we see as not only necessary for the beginning of the Christian life, but necessary for growth henceforth. Therefore, repentance, as Luther said, should be the centerpiece of our lives from conversion to death. Is that how you think of it, I wonder? Or do you think this is something that we do when we first become Christians, but haven't much need for it after that? Do you join our unbelieving world and perhaps thinking it's a stuffy and unpleasant word that can be taken or left? Or do you, like Pope Leo and his flunky Tetzel, think that all that is needed is some act of penance as if one can purchase or earn one's way into the grace of God? Ferguson said this, in today's church, we are as likely to be told not only that we can become Christians without such repentance, but can even remain Christians without it being carnal to the end of our days. By contrast, our forefathers were convinced that repentance is so central to the gospel that without it, there could be no salvation. They believe this because it's the Bible's teaching. In the text we consider this morning, we see repentance all throughout it and at the forefront. We therefore see important lessons or aspects of repentance, lessons we need because, as Ferguson said, without repentance, there is not only no salvation, to begin with, there is no growth in Christ without it being an ongoing aspect of our lives. So let's explore this in Jonah 3 by considering three important points about repentance, beginning with point number one. Let's call this God's word summons. God's word summons. We join, as we jump back into Jonah, our stubborn prophet, Sometime after he had been regurgitated onto an unnamed shore by the great fish in which he spent three days and three nights in its womb. God now has given Jonah something that he did not deserve, which is a second chance at obeying his divine call to go to Nineveh. We're told in verse 1 and 2, God comes to Jonah a second time and tells him to arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, the message that I tell you to say. So Jonah arises and he goes to Nineveh. Look at what it says according to the word of the Lord. It's about time he obeys, right? So he gets to Nineveh. He preaches for a day the message that 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the unexpected happens. The entire city responds positively to this message. 
The city, from king to peasant, repents and calls on the one true God, asking him to relent from disaster that his prophet just proclaimed. Now, I want you to notice the centrality of the word of God in this chapter. The word of the Lord is what came to Jonah to tell him to go to Nineveh. It was the word of the Lord that summoned Jonah to go. It was the word from the Lord that Jonah was to obey. On top of that, it was the word of the Lord Jonah was to proclaim. God told Jonah that, Jonah, you don't have to come up with your own message, nor are you free to editorialize the message as you see fit. The problem, though, is that Jonah may have done just that. I mean, consider the message that he preaches. Here it is, okay? Here's the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the whole message. Five words in Hebrew is the extent of his sermon. Don't you wish, don't say amen, that my sermon are only five, five words long. This is the shortest prophetic denunciation on record. Even Jonah in the VeggieTale movie gave Nineveh a two-minute song that told them to stop their sins of lying and cheating and stealing and slapping each other with fish. And he said that that message came from the Lord. Not this Jonah, though. Five words, one visit, one day, and that's all they got. Now, some commentators speculate that this was surely not the whole message that Jonah gave. But this is what we're told he preached. Is it not? This is what we're told. We're not told anything else. Perhaps those commentators are willing to give him more benefit of the doubt than I am. But what I see, and I think we've seen together, from 1-1 to 4-11 in this book of Jonah, is he's never, ever presented in a positive way. Did he finally obey? Yes. But it appears that he even phoned in his obedience. His message is simply what? That Nineveh will be overturned in 40 days. This is the word from the Lord. This is true. There's no doubt about that. But that's certainly not all of it. Consider it again. He doesn't tell them that the message is from Yahweh, does he? Other prophets begin or end their message with this prophetic formula of thus says the Lord. But not Jonah. If you're a Ninevite and a stranger comes into your town, how do you know from whence this foreign man that smells vaguely of fish comes? And in whose name he proclaims these things? Which God does he serve? Who is it that's going to bring about this disaster? Jonah doesn't say. On top of that, he doesn't tell them they need to repent. He doesn't tell them why they are doomed. What sins are they guilty of that warranted these acts from Yahweh? We know their sins. We saw in week one. And Jonah knows their sins. That's one of the reasons why he hates them. So why does he tell them of their wickedness? He doesn't tell them what they could do to perhaps prevent this impending doom. Further, it takes three days to visit Nineveh. Isn't that what verse three tells us? Why did it take Jonah just one? Is he a power walker? Did he tell the message while running like a marathon? Or did he just not visit the entire city? Jonah's obedience is not what it appears at first blush, is it? Terrence Fretheim said of this, Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. Now he turns around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance. A graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. Now what's crazy about all this is even with Jonah's half-baked sermon, 
he may very well be the most successful prophet in history. What happens after he preaches this message? The whole city responds. What does verse 5 say? And the people of Nineveh believed God. Then they showed their repentance with fasting and sackcloth and ash. But here's the key, though, right? The people responded not to Jonah, but to who? To God. They believed in God. That's what the text says. They believed God. They called out to God. They appealed to God. Why? Because it is God's word that summons. It's God's word that is powerful. And it is God's word that cuts people to the heart. And it is God's word that induces a response. God worked in spite of Jonah, didn't he? Jonah proclaimed, but it was God who worked through even his mediocre message. The fact remains, what Jonah said was true. If the people didn't repent, they would be overturned like Sodom and Gomorrah had been overturned. And that is precisely what their sin and their idolatry had earned them. But God was giving them a chance to repent and worship the God of the whole world, and he used even this stubborn prophet to do it. Note this, verse 6 says, the word did what? It reached the king of Nineveh. What does that mean? It means Jonah did not preach to the king himself. Jonah didn't go to the king and preach. He didn't preach to the whole city. He walked it. He commenced his five-word message immediately upon entering his gates. He did it for a day. Then he left the city, and he posted up some distance away to see if it would be destroyed like he wanted it to be destroyed. The word reached the king in spite of Jonah. Somehow, the word got to him. God ensured that his message reached the king even without the full cooperation of his prophet. God's word is what summons us to repentance. God's word is what transforms hearts and minds. And it's God's word that can work even in spite of us and our weaknesses. Which is a great comfort, yes? Especially to me as someone who preaches every week. I don't need to be eloquent or impressive. You're like, successful. Dynamic. I just need to unleash the word and get out of the way. Right? That's a great comfort. It will work in spite of of me. That's good news, not only to preachers, but it's good news to you in your evangelism, isn't it? Just proclaim the word and move. (laughs) This is why every time we begin our worship gatherings with the word, a call to worship, and why it's always a passage of scripture, it's because God is the one who summons us and calls us to worship. God is summoning us to worship. Me and Daniel don't call you or summon you to worship. God does it, and he does it how? Through his word. This is also why our gatherings are word-centered. It is the word that transforms and calls. It is the word that cuts to the heart. It is the word that convicts and confronts and transforms. As long as it is word-centered and biblically faithful, we know God will use it even in spite of the one preaching and his shortcomings. God's word does the summoning, and once it's unleashed, it has transformative effects. So much ink and angst has been spent by church leaders near and far, wondering how they can manufacture a response from people inside and outside the church. How can we get people here? How can we attract folks? What gimmicks can we come up with that will get people in and keep them? 
programs or dramas, music, light shows, fog machines, sermon series based on movies, affinity groups for every conceivable stage of life, kids area designed by Disney. We ask, what can we do? And in such cases of attractionalism, the message of repent and believe on a crucified Christ, lest you be eternally lost, is an unpalatable bummer. So it's largely left out in favor of man-made tactics that will be more pleasant. Bergen says that it used to be saying, let us worship God would bring goosebumps to our ancestors, but now we need color and movement and audiovisuals. He says, God cannot be known, loved, and praised and trusted for his own sake. Christ isn't enough to draw and attract. We must add more, always more. But what if we realize that God is the one who summons? And his word is enough to be central. And his Christ is all the attractiveness that the church needs to draw sinners. Is that not what happened in Nineveh? Where's his laser light show and fog machine and programs? Is that what happened in Pentecost and through all of Acts? Is that not what has drawn men to repentance and salvation for 2,000 years? What if we stopped trying to be creative people pleasers and feared the Lord more than men and unleashed the word and got out of the way? Then what? Let's think again of Luther. You know, when the Reformation began to get traction and Europe started to be transformed, Luther was asked to explain, how did did this happen? How is it that such a movement has gained such a wide audience, is what people asked him. And how is it that it has transformed so many lives? I want you to listen to what Luther said in response to this. He said, take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. He said, had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would have it been? Mere's, mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh, what a fine game these poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself. The word of God came to Nineveh and it spread and the people from the king to the beggar were cut to the heart. That's what the word does. It hits the heart and it grabs hold of it, causing every person to be confronted with a choice to repent or to harden one's heart against the message of God's salvation. And this leads us to our second point. After the word summons, point number two, the heart is gripped. Point number two, the heart is gripped. After Jonah preaches, he fades into the background. You notice of this chapter. The rest of the chapter, we don't see him again. Once the word is proclaimed, the scene shifts away from Jonah to the citizens' remarkable response to God's warning. They trusted 
God. They trusted that he had revealed to their hearts and through the word was true. They had, no, they had a choice, right, to make once they received this message. Our friend Charles Spurgeon said, what rings very true is that the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. The people of Nineveh, just as every person living today has a choice, harden your heart or allow it to be melted by God's gospel. That's a choice you have to make. That's a choice I have to make. That's a choice everyone in the world has to make. Harden your heart or allow it to be melted by God's gospel. So the Ninevites, once hearing the message, could reject it. They could have rejected it, couldn't they? Of course they could. They come to the conclusion that Jonah was wrong, that the word was wrong, that God was wrong, and to resolve to continue living their lives the way they did before this random fellow just showed up. Or they could believe the truthfulness of the message and see that they were indeed sinners deserving of condemnation and cry out to the Lord. Maybe he would save them if they repented, and that is what they chose. So be sure, nothing can account for Nineveh's surprising receptivity other than God's preparation for this moment. God moved on their hearts. God showed them the truthfulness of what was being revealed to them, and they were gripped by it and thus repented. The text says that they believed God. They believed that what God had revealed to their hearts regarding their sin and offenses was true. They believed that this overturning that was predicted was the just deserts of their rebellion. And they didn't believe that they ought to be given mercy. This is a key that we need to understand. They did not believe it. They asked for it in hopes that God would relent. Repentance is necessary for us to be saved and for us to grow because it is a recognition of what we have done and the penalty that we deserve for those actions of sin and rebellions. It's to account for who God is and who we are. It's to remember that he is holy and we are not. And thus, we cannot approach him on our own merits. It's to remember we deserve wrath and subsequently appeal to him for mercy on account of his wrath-bearing Christ. It not only is the beginning of the Christian life, it's a mark of ongoing reform in Christ-likeness. Repentance, therefore, is not what especially bad Christians do. Repentance is normal Christian life. In Lord of the Rings, you remember this scene, right? In both the books and the movies, there's a scene, I think it gets overlooked, for its potency and what it communicates. There's a character, and his name is Boromir. Remember Boromir, Christian? Uh, he's part of the fellowship representing the human race. He represents the human race of the fellowship. He's described multiple times as proud, okay? And he's proud of where he's from. He's proud of who his family is, and he's a bit arrogant. At one point, Legolas suggests that Aragorn is heir to the throne, and Boromir snidely says, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king, okay? That's important. You fast forward on the journey to get the ring to Mordor, and Boromir is seduced by the ring. And it's power. So he tries to take it to, from Frodo. But Frodo escapes. He, he thought, Boromir thought along, along that it would be better to use the ring to defeat the Dark Lord rather than destroy it. Well, later on, Frodo and company are attacked by orcs and Boromir stands up for them. And he takes arrows for them. And he gives his life for them. He who once opposed this whole mission attacked Frodo and tried to take the ring for himself has now put his life on the line for all of it. Well, as he's dying, this is important, okay? Aragorn goes to him, holds 
his hand, and Boromir with his dying breath admits, I tried to take the ring from Frodo. I'm sorry, I have paid. Farewell, Aragorn, I have failed. Well, in the movie, he says to the man he once scoffed at being king, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Well, Aragorn tells him in reply, you have not failed, you have conquered, few have gained such a victory. Now, do you see what, even if you're not into Lord of the Rings, you see what has happened here. Boromir repented. He freely admitted that he was wrong. He doesn't dance around or excuse why he tried to steal the ring. He knew he sinned. He didn't skirt his guilt. Further, he had been so adamant that Aragorn was not a rightful king, and now he calls Aragorn his king, who he have followed until the end. Tolkien gives us such a clear picture of repentance here. He knew he was wrong. He acknowledged it without making any excuse. He knew what he deserved because of it. And now he acknowledged who the true king is. That's repentance. Repentance, you understand, is not that one has simply heard the word. It follows from the heart being gripped and truly seeing God for who he is and us for who we are and sin for what it is and that salvation belongs only to the Lord. It recognized that we make lousy kings and that Jesus is the true and rightful king we have to submit to. But repentance isn't merely feeling bad or regretful for sin that we've committed either. Is there sorrow and a sense of guilt? Yes, but one can feel bad for the consequences or that you didn't get away with it without truly repenting. Isn't that true? Repentance goes deeper. It's a realization that we haven't broken the rules of some distant and abstract deity. It's seeing that sin is breaking God's heart. It's to, like Boromir, not make excuse, but to admit our wrongdoing and mean it, knowing it's actually wrong. Sam Storms, he has a helpful uh, definition of repentance. He says, genuine repentance is not simply a rethinking of one's relationship to sin and God. Repentance must be first rooted in the realization of how sinful an action, emotion, belief, or way of life is. Then one must be grieved by how offensive and grieving sin is to God, not simply afraid of God's retribution for your sin. In other words, repentance must be rooted in a high value of God, not a high value of oneself. Only then can turning away from sin towards holiness truly be called repentance. The failure to repent is thus a form of idolatry. Refusal to repent is to elevate our own souls above God's glory. But when one does repent, it leads to the forgiveness of sin, the removal of divine discipline, and the restoration of one's communion with God. You see that the king in Nineveh says in his decree to the whole city in verses 7 through 9 that the people should wear sackcloth and fast and call out to God, and then this is a key you need to see. He, at, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What's he doing? He recognizes that mercy is not owed to him. He recognizes that even with his repentance, God doesn't need to forgive him. He sees that God is not obligated to forgive them even in the midst of their contrition. The king sees that God has divine freedom to do as he wishes. He's not required to relent from his wrath. 
He's admitting that if any change in their situation were to occur, it would be on the basis of God's gratuitous mercy alone. So the people of Nineveh repent for repentance sake. This is another lesson we have to learn concerning repentance. You know, oftentimes you will hear Christians take 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, that I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. You've heard this, yes? And, and Christians will use it as sort of, if we do this, God must do that. If we humble ourselves and seek his face, God is duty-bound to hear our, heal our land. That is how it's used. Like it's a magic formula that one can invoke to make God do what we want him to do. It's used in such a way that not only applies a specific promise meant for ancient Israel and apply it to whatever secular nation the petitioner happens to be in, but it also is used to say that if we do A, God must do B. It's talked about as if God is obligated to give us mercy if we repent. But he isn't. Don't we have this upside down? God isn't obligated to forgive anyone. He doesn't give us a formula that says, if you press this button, then I am thus forced to do this corresponding action. True repentance doesn't say, okay, God, I did this, now you do that. I did my end of the bargain, you do yours. How is that different than tossing a coin into a coffer and thinking it'll remove punishment like a magic incantation or a lever one pulls? Repentance rather says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And I don't deserve to even be a servant in your house, like the prodigal son. It says with David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It is to reckon with who we are, to humble oneself, to not make excuses saying, well, you see, you have to understand. You do this? What, what had happened was, right? It ceased to plead your case at all. Not only at first, but for the rest of your life. It's to fire the lawyer in your heart for legal malpractice. Why? Because you don't need to be justified by what you do or what you don't do because you find justification in Christ alone. If you see you're justified by Christ, what need is there to plead your own case? Do you see? We only plead our case when we think we are the ones who justify ourselves. But if God responds to our repentance of, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and he comes bounding down the road to receive us, why would we meet such grace with a need to become anything on our own? Do you see the humility of the king of Nineveh? Once he realizes his offense, he does four things. Did you see it? What does he say? He got off his throne, which showed the relinquishing of his own authority. He removed the royal robe, showing the shedding of his wealth and prestige. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. He became indistinguishable from the commoner in the city. And he said, maybe God will relent so that we may not be destroyed. Only when we're weak and lowly can we repent. 
as long as we hold on to some modicum of prestige and goodness and power and ruling place of our lives, we will remain far from God. Confidence in ourselves, strength in our, on our own, pride in who we are or what we've done or what we can do. These are enemies to true repentance, don't you see? Unless we're willing to admit weakness and need, we'll never receive Christ, nor will we grow in him. You guys remember many years ago, uh, media mogul Ted Turner, remember him? He owned that baseball team that's over there for a time. He said that Christianity, do you remember this, is a religion for losers. You guys remember that? You know, Christians everywhere were incensed. How dare you, we said. How dare you say that Christianity is for losers. Christianity for losers is for winners. Now you add this to how much time and energy and money has been spent by Christians trying to convince the world that Christianity is cool. How we have for years relished, relished and celebrated famous athletes, actors, and singers who have said they were Christians. We beam with pride and we point to them and we say, see, Christianity is cool. Christianity is for winners. But you know something? Ted Turner was right. Christianity is for losers. Christianity is for losers. That shouldn't make us mad. And celebrities lend no credibility to the, to the Christianity since the truthfulness of the gospel does not hinge on who accepts it. It hinges on a savior. And what did he do? Humbled himself. Died a cruel death. And every single person who looked at his hanging, naked, alone corpse said, look at that loser. You know who the so-called winners were on that day, on that Good Friday? Pilate and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, Satan and hell, because they thought you win the same way the world does to this day, by showing brute strength, independence, impressiveness, and worldly power. But Jesus was the winner, wasn't he? And how? Here's the paradox of gospel, right? By losing, by being purposefully weak, by emptying himself, by being a servant, by humbling himself. He who needed no humbling humbled himself. And we suppose victory through him is gained in any other way. The gospel is for those who can't win and know it. Those who have no strength of their own. Those who are not mighty, not impressive and have nothing to commend themselves to God and know it. Those who think they are strong and mighty can only receive the gospel when they are humbled and repent. Jonah 3 shows us that this is the case. Unless you're willing to shed your supposed royal robes and place on the throne and sit in a pile of ashes wearing a potato sack, you'll stay outside the kingdom. Nineveh could only receive the power of God when they heard the word, when they were gripped by it and were cut to the heart and when they humbled themselves and when they cried out for mercy and they knew they didn't deserve that mercy and threw themselves on the grace and power of God and that's how we do it too. Jonah was only useful once he was humbled. Isn't that fair to say? Once he experienced the humiliation of drowning in a fish's belly and being barfed up and covered in fish goop. Only then could he be used by God. And once we are humbled by the glories of God and the state of our hearts apart from him, then we could receive mercy and be used by God. 
We ought never depart from the dependence on God we feel at first. Never. But not only do we need to be gripped in the heart. Point number three. Three, our last point. Our feet need to respond. Point number three. The feet respond. What do I mean by this? It's another way of saying that repentance isn't merely a feeling, but it must be followed by actions as well. Repentant hearts respond with deeds. As J.I. Packer said, repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. It is only, it is not only one or the other, it's both. Now, this doesn't mean we're saved or sustained by our deeds, right? It means that if we truly see sin for what it is, we will ever be endeavoring to kill it more and more. And this can't be done simply by feeling bad that we sinned. Well, what did the Ninevites do? I want you to think again of sitting in sackcloth and ash and fasting. Why I do all that? To merely show contrition and sorrow? Yeah, well, it's for that, but it's more, isn't it? The fasting and uncomfortable dress represented self-denial. By overly denying themselves of normal comforts and making themselves physically miserable, they were showing the genuineness of their prayers and mercy. And God is no fool. God is not fooled by outward acts of piety alone. If they were not repentant from the heart, he would not have relented from disaster. But God saw into their hearts and he saw these outward acts were true manifestation of what was going on internally. And so what did he do? What else did they do? Verse eight, they turned from their evil ways and their violence. Verse 10, God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. They didn't just proclaim cessation of evil. They actually ceased from their evil's ways. That is true repentance. Why should the Christian repent as a posture of daily life? Why? Well, not only are we daily sinners, are you a daily sinner? And thus should be daily repenters, but because there is still evil and sin in us. We more and more must be about killing the sin that remains through the power of the indwelling spirit so we are more and more like Christ. Why else? Because it is for our good. Sin kills us. Sin mars our relationship with God and others. Sin makes us selfish and angry and internally focused and proud. Why then would we continually pursue it? The alternative to act Active repentance and sin killing is what? You know what the, the, the opposite is? Do nothing. And what else, what, what does that do? It allows sin to fester and grow. You know this, something is going to grow in our hearts. And if we aren't always about killing sin, then sin will be what grows. Either the gospel will choke it out or it will choke out the gospel. You can be assured of that. Ferguson said in another place, what do we need to do to slow down and go backwards in the Christian life? Nothing. Drifting is the easiest thing in the world. It's swimming against the tide that requires effort. And the Christian life is against the tide all the way. Spiritual weariness, being sluggish, is one of our greatest enemies. It must always be about repenting, truly repenting, and that means going in for the kill on our sins. Not making excuses, not saying, well, you have to understand that, but seeing them for what they are and seeing the beauty of Christ is greater, that he is the justifier and doing what we must. It's going to hurt. 
It's going to be uncomfortable. And this is why we don't do it. Yes? This is why. Sackcloth and fasting and ash are shown to us because they're uncomfortable acts of repentance. They're purposefully unpleasant to signify what sin does and what ridding sin requires. But that's not all they did. They ceased those deeds that put them at enmity with the one true God. But if something stands between us and knowing more of Christ and growing in his likeness, isn't it worth whatever pain or discomfort or change of life that we require? Let me ask that again. That's pretty important, isn't it? If something stands between us and knowing more of Christ and growing in his likeness, isn't it worth whatever pain or discomfort or change of life it would require? Isn't Christ worth it? You know, he thought you worth the greatest pain and separation and sorrow and discomfort of them all, yet he reckoned you worth it. Isn't he worth it even more? One of my favorite illustrations of the pains of sin killing and transformation takes place in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is in the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, there was this little boy, his name was Eustace, okay? And everyone hated him. Everyone hated him, which was fine with him, because guess what? He hated everybody, right? He hated everybody. It worked out. He was selfish, he was mean, and nobody could get along with him. But he, he has a high estimation of himself. Well, they're on this island, one day, and he discovers, he goes off alone so he doesn't have to help them load the boat, okay? And he stumbles upon a cave. And the cave was filled with gold and rubies and diamonds. And the first thing he thinks is, I'm rich. And he says, I, 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 can, I can think of ways now that I'm wealthy to get back at anybody who's laughed at me. I get revenge on anybody who has stepped on me or slighted me. And they will get their comeuppance, okay? Well, he's in this cave and he falls asleep on this pile of treasure. Well, he doesn't know that the treasure is actually the hoard of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with these greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he's actually become a dragon. This big, terrible, ugly, and he realizes there's no way out. He can't get on the boat. He's going to be left on the island. He's going to be left this way, horrible way, all his life, and so he falls into despair. Well, one day, the great lion Aslan shows up. If you know the Chronicles of Narnia, you know he's the Christ figure in these books. And what he does, he leads Eustace to a clear pool of water, and he tells him, undress and jump in. And suddenly, Eustace realizes that undress means to take off his dragon skin. Well, he begins to gnaw and claw off the scales, and he realizes that he can't shed his skin. In the end, the lion says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And this is, what, this is how Eustace describes it in the story. He says, I was afraid of his claws, Aslan's claws, I could tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, darker, and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. What is required in true repentance is to see our dragonous state, to be desperate, to see the true nature 
of our sin, to see our weakness and our neediness and our helplessness and turn to God in Christ because we see that his beauty and his mercy are bigger even than our sin. But then to lean into the Holy Spirit and let him rip off the sin one knobbly scale at a time and it'll stink. But whatever it costs, it's worth becoming who Christ means for us to be, which is like him more and more until the end when he makes us whole, fully, and finally. Well, we are told that God saw them and their hearts and he relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them. God decided in his grace not to destroy Nineveh. God is everything Jonah feared that he would be. And he's everything that Nineveh hoped he would be. You guys remember in Luke 11, we see Jesus before the crowds and they demand a sign. So we want a sign. And Jesus says this, I'll give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. He says, just as Jonah became a sign to Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then he says something truly remarkable. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the truer better Jonah, and he came with a message full of grace, but he said something very similar to Jonah. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Nineveh received it. Jesus' generation rejected it. What will you do? If you call on him and repent, God will relent of disaster because Christ has absorbed all the disaster we deserve. But don't repent just once. Do it every day. Do it every day of your life. Make repentance a normal part of your life because you love Christ and hate that which will separate him from you. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance.